Good morning. Today's scripture reading will be in the book of Ephesians, chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 15 through 21. Would you please turn there with me? And if you're in your pew Bible, it'll be page 978. Ephesians 5, 15 through 21. Look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and singing spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your hearts, giving thanks always and for everything to God, the father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting yourselves to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let's pray. Dearest Father, we do thank you for this day that you've made. We thank you that you've allowed us to get here safely this morning to uh, worship you corporately as a body. I pray that you would allow us just to clear our minds and our hearts of all of the cares of the world and to be those that would be impacted by your word today, that we would indeed uh, understand this life is fleeting and these days are evil, Lord, and that we would uh, endeavor to redeem them for your glory, that we would be those that would pursue you and love one another, Father, um, addressing each other in all ways that are honoring to you, Lord. Take this time now to grow us in your word, to deepen our love for you, and to magnify yourself. Be with Steve as he would present this to us this morning in a way that would make the most of you, Father. Uh, we pray that your son would be exalted this morning, that the power of your spirit would be evident, and that you would be glorified. And we pray this in the name of your son. Amen. Uh, I'm going to have you open up to Ephesians, but I'm going to have you go to Ephesians 2 first, and then we'll move our way into Ephesians 5. Everyone in here, everyone in the world, is controlled by something. There is not a single exception in this room. So the question is not, are you controlled, but by what or by whom are you controlled? Some of you are controlled by fear. Fear of failing, fear of others. Some of you are controlled by body image. Some are controlled by the fear of the unknown. Spiritually, though, there is an invisible controlling agent, if you would. And I want you to look at Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 2, because here, spiritually, are, the, are really the two big alternatives. You are either controlled by your father, the devil. This is exactly what Jesus said. In John 8:44, when he would, when he looked at highly elite religious people, and he said, "You are of your father the devil," meaning they were showing forth his nature, or you imitate your father in heaven. Look at Ephesians 2 verse 1. We'll pick up where it says, "You were dead in the trespasses and sins." Okay, that is the the, the past of every one of us. It may be the present of some of you, but it's at least the past. Of every one of us, we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked following the course of this world, following interesting. Look what it says. The prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, there is a spirit that works in disobedient, unbelieving people. It exerts control, whether they are aware of it or not whether their worldview allows for a spirit world or not, whether they are either atheists or just naturalists, there is a spirit at work in them. I enjoy football. 
I enjoy watching high school football when I have a family member in it. I enjoy college football the most. I enjoy watching sometimes the NFL. But last Sunday afternoon, in one game, between the teams and the halftime show, which we did not watch at our house, and several of the commercials, we were drugged through the swamp of self-exaltation, greed, flagrant drunkenness, unbridled sensuality, and high-end materialism. And the world loved it. And we expect that. What we shouldn't expect is that believers loved it. There is a term, somnambulism, it's the medical term for sleepwalking. It can be very dangerous. Some people have climbed 150 foot tall cranes, driven cars while asleep, walked out third story windows, and committed heinous crimes while sleepwalking. It accurately describes the human spiritual condition when we simply let our life move to a cruise control, sort of an autopilot, and we get so involved in the busyness and the habits, the wrong habits and rhythms of life that we're basically spiritually sleepwalking and we become desensitized to the world in which we're actually walking through. The practical aspects of the Christian's behavior or lifestyle, we've talked about this several times, is indicated in Ephesians by the verb walk. Okay, walk simply means lifestyle or behavior. We live, we behave a certain way, and there's a reason why we do. Yes, we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, right? That'll be a, that'll be a hymn we sing. But there's a living out of this grace life that involves, even demands, deliberate action. So it's not like we can just now sleepwalk because we've been saved by grace alone. No, there's a deliberate purposeful, sort of aimed walk that believers must take. The verb walk indicates something learned, controlled, directed, and continued. And from the second part of Ephesians, Ephesians 4 to 6, it is this verb walk that is the clue for major section breaks. I want you to, I want you to look at these with me. Turn to Ephesians 4 verse 1. So you have the, the, the depth and the height of incredible Christological doctrine, uh, salvific doctrine in chapters 1 through 3. And immediately there's a shift in chapter 4, verse 1, and he says this, Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. What does a worthy walk look like? Remember, it's deliberately worthy. We purpose to walk in a worthy way that actually mirrors our calling. And that calling is that we are in union with Jesus Christ. So we're living out this new relationship. Look at verse 2. This is what a worthy walk looks like. With all what? With all humility. Arrogance and pride are unworthy of followers of Christ. And gentleness with patience, 
bearing with one another in love. Verse 3, chapter 4, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Those are the attitudes of a worthy walk. And those attitudes, if you would, there's guardrails. It's not just that we're loving or just that we pursue peace. Look at, look at the doctrine that, that is around the triunity of God in verse 4. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the, to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. It's not just attitude, it is doctrine. It is clear, core doctrine that now, if you would, deliberates your steps of a worthy walk. Look at verse 17. This is the second mention. And this one is in the negative. First one, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. This one is no longer walk as what? Gentiles. You know, for some of us, it would make more sense if it just said, no longer walk as giraffes, right? We'd be like, well, that makes sense. It's almost like this command gets lost with the word Gentiles. Of course we don't walk as Gentiles. Or do we? Because we are Gentiles. See, we're like, what does that even mean? Let me give you a street translation, sort of a cultural interpretation. No longer walk as normal Americans do. Does that make sense? No longer live like the masses around you do. Stop valuing and living for what godless people are living for, even your moral godless neighbors. You live differently. You stop living like them. Stop jumping into the river and being brought downstream with the masses. No, you live differently. Go to the next one. Chapter 5, verse 2. Walk in love. And we're told what that looks like. Look at verse 2 of chapter 5. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Let me ask you, did Jesus love you because you were like Him? Did Jesus love you because you valued everything He valued? Because you were of the same affiliation as Him? Did He love you because you were lovable? Or because you were attractive? Jesus actually says this. He says, you love those who only love you back in return. I'm asking you to love your enemies. And that's exactly what Jesus did when He showed us His love. So when we walk in love... We walk as Christ loved us and gave Himself for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So it's Jesus' example of forgiveness, His example of kindness, not how much love we get in return. And not how deserving the other person is of our love. Not if we're going to walk in love as Christ loves. Look at the next reference. Look at verse 8, chapter 5. Walk as children of light. What does that look like? Look at verse 11. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. So if you are following Jesus, the light of the world, and you are sort of exemplifying his character, you are a light. But there are times as believers we can choose not to shine. We can choose to stream darkness, buy it, drink it, inhale it, laugh at it, be entertained by it. But as we're following Him, as we're walking in the light, our life exposes darkness. And that's uncomfortable. 
It's uncomfortable for those who love darkness rather than light, as Jesus says. And it can be uncomfortable for you as the light, as the Apostle Paul said. Yea, all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer what? Persecution. Why? Because you're shining. And you're exposed. They didn't know that it was that filthy until you stepped in and let your light shine. And the question is, does our life expose the moral darkness of our society? Now, that brings us to our text this morning where we find the next use of the verb walk. Look at verse 15 of chapter 5. Look carefully then how you what? How you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. Now, in light of the previous section's teaching of exposure by light and God's judgment, look carefully how you walk. Do you know there are times when you naturally walk more carefully than others? I don't have to walk carefully in my own home anymore, partly because my children aren't little. It's been years since I've stepped on a Lego with bare feet, right? My kids don't leave their toys laying around anymore. Um, I know where the furniture is. I know the angles of the footprint of our house. We've lived there for about seven years. I don't walk carefully. I don't even have to turn lights on and I can navigate it at night. There are times, however, when you must walk carefully. For example, in Zambia, particularly by the Luangwa River that is infested with creatures that have claws and teeth. You become or should become very aware. You look carefully how you walk. You're looking for snakes on the ground. If you're by the river, you don't want to be too close to the river. And yet you don't want to be so far on the other side that you're that you're where the cats are. The first hazard is crocodiles. That's what you must assume in any body of water in Africa. So you are walking carefully. And if you've ever seen a video of a croc coming out of the water and running at top speed for 30 yards to take down an impala, you will walk at least 50 yards away from the river. The other hazard is hippos, the big, cute herbivores. And if they're grazing and you get between them and the river that you're trying to stay away from, they will come and they've been known to decapitate humans, even though they're not flesh eaters. There's a saying by Zambian tribes who fish on the river. If a croc attacks, stay in the boat because he wants you. If a hippo attacks, jump out of the boat because he wants the boat. Now, you can hopefully you'll never have to make that decision. OK, so what I'm saying is there are certain times in life when you look to walk Carefully. Go back to that term sleepwalking. Everything looks clean out there right now, doesn't it? Go to King Super and everything's arranged nice and you've got all this selection and people are waiting in line. They even trust you to check yourself out. It all looks clean. And we can get into, a, into this kind of mental sleepwalking, spiritual sleepwalking, where we start to believe everything's safe. And we no longer look to walk carefully. We're sleepwalking through life in a world where there is a much more dangerous beast who prowls around like, like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And we've stopped looking because he's invisible. And we've stopped watching and we've stopped walking carefully because we don't clearly see him. We're told why we must walk carefully. Look at verse 16. Because why? Because the days are what? 
Because the days are evil, the times, our moments, the succession of life is characterized by evil. That is why two negative descriptions are given. Look at verse 15. It's the first one. Don't be what? Don't be unwise. And the second negative description is in verse 17. Don't be what? Foolish. Let me ask you a question. Is it possible for a believer to be unwise and foolish? Yes, but they don't have to be. And the reason they don't have to be is God has given to you his word and he has given to you his spirit. So when you are unwise and foolish, you are deliberately making a choice to be so. That's why the Apostle Paul says, look carefully how you live. Walk wisely, walk with understanding, be controlled by the spirit. Those are the three descriptions of what a careful walk looks like. So look at verse 15. Be careful to walk wisely, not as unwise, but as wise. Verse 16, this is what a wise walk looks like. This is what a careful walk looks like, making the best use of time. A careful walk is one that makes the best use of time. Do you know even Moses prayed this in Psalm 90, verse 12? Moses prayed, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Easiest question I'll ask you this morning. How many days do you have left? Every once in a while, just just for kind of morbid fun, there is a death clock that you can type in on Google, type in your birth date, and it'll tell you exactly how many days you have left. A little disturbing, right? How many days do you have left? The answer is you don't know. Nobody, I'm going to guess, nobody woke up this morning and said, you know, I really think today is my last day. I'm going to breathe my last breath today. But if somehow you knew that, wouldn't you make the most of every opportunity today? Wouldn't every minute be golden? Wouldn't every second be spent with those you love speaking truth to them and guiding them and coaching them and exhorting them? Wouldn't it be filled with hugs on those you love? calls to those that you need to make things right with. We don't have to be foolish. We don't have to be unwise. We make the best of every opportunity. Jonathan Edwards, a philosopher theologian who was used during America's Great Awakening, wrote a whole list of resolutions just before his 20th birthday. One of his resolutions he penned was this, resolved never to lose one moment of time, but to improve it in the most profitable way I possibly can. If each day is a gift and we use wisdom and we are not fools, then we will make the best use of time. How do we know what opportunities to take? First of all, we're going to see in a parallel passage in Colossians, we read God's word. We let God's word dwell in us richly. Let me just read to you a proverb, Proverbs 2, which is found in a wisdom book. And listen to what a man tells his son. I just want you to hear these words and where wisdom is found and how it is found. Proverbs chapter 2. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it, wisdom, like silver, And search for it as for hidden treasures. Then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. 
For the Lord gives wisdom. From His mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of His saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you, delivering you from the way of evil. Don't be foolish. Don't be, under, don't be unwise. Now, inserted between the command to walk carefully and the reason why evil days is a second description. Look at verse 17. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand. I want you to see this phrase because it has really uh, been mistreated so often. But understand what the will of the Lord is. Do you know the will of the Lord is not a mystery? Jesus said that his true family are those who know and do his father's will. So it's something that can be known. Matter of fact, Mark chapter 3, verse 35. Whoever does God's will, Jesus says, is my brother and sister and mother. His closest relations are the ones who do his father's will. In the parable of the two sons, Jesus rebukes the chief priests and the elders for failing to do the will of the father. And specifically in that parable, do you know what the will of the Father is? This is what Jesus says. You failed to repent and believe. Do you know at its most basic, the will of God is to turn from our sin and to the Savior? Don't set the beautiful doctrine of election aside in the broader plan of salvation But remember this, Jesus came into Galilee preaching, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then what did he say in Mark chapter one, verse 15? Repent and believe. He's preaching it to everyone. Have you obeyed the will of the father? Have you repented and believed in the son? Several passages explicitly tell believers what the will of the Lord is. 1 Thessalonians 5.18. This is what the will of the Lord is. Are you ready? We are to give thanks in all circumstances for this is God's will for you. Have the last seven days been defined as days of thanksgiving or complaining and griping and entitlement? Well, the will of the Lord is that you give thanks in all things. It specifically says that. 1 Peter 2.15 says this, For this is the will of God that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. It is God's will that you do good works. Let me ask you, in the last seven days, what good works defined you? Did you spend even 20 minutes helping someone who you know can never repay you back? Did you spend 10 minutes with somebody who was exhausting or irritating or difficult because you wanted to show them the love of the Father? What good works defined your life in the last seven days? Don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Turn back to Ephesians 2. Everybody should be in Ephesians 5. Look at Ephesians 2, verse 8. Okay, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And God's people say, Amen. Right? 
Because if it were up to me being good even for 24 hours, I'm lost. I have no hope. So it's got to be this way or, or I'm not saved. By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. And God's people say what? Amen. Because if it's not a gift and I have to earn it, I'm lost. Verse 9. It's not a result of works so that no one may boast. Amen. Look at verse 10. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. You're not saved by them, but a true saved person's life will be characterized by good works. Back to Ephesians 5.17. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Listen to God's will in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13, or before verse 3. It is God's will, I'm reading Scripture here, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, right, set apart, holy, that you should avoid sexual immorality. That's God's will for you. God's will for you is sexual purity. And if we disregard the will of God in that matter, then how can we expect his blessing of reward and his blessing on obedience? Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Ephesians 5.17 But often, we lose this concept of the will of the Lord because we want specifics, right? Where to work, where to live, whom to marry, what car to buy, Tesla or Lamborghini, of course, right? We want wisdom to know which one to buy. And the fact is, if you are obeying God's will in the clearly revealed parts of His Word, that you are set apart and holy, that you are thankful, that you're doing good works and you're serving others as Christ has for you, those decisions become clear, actually. They start to just unfold naturally. And the beautiful part about being yielded to God is He has a way of preventing wrong choices. Aren't you glad when God does that? Let me give you an example in Acts chapter 16. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia. This is a missionary journey. They're going to do good. Having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. One of the added blessings of being yielded to God, being yielded to His word and His spirit, is that He actually can not only lead you clearly to the right thing, He will prompt you and keep you from the wrong thing. There is safety in walking with God. Therefore, Ephesians 5.17, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. This is part of looking carefully how we live, how we walk. There's a third description of what a careful walk looks like. Look at verse 18. And what we're going to see is a careful and holy walk in an evil world is only possible by the infilling of God's Spirit, whose name and nature are holy. The Holy Spirit. Structurally, this section consists of two imperatives or commands and four present participles. Okay? Addressing, singing, thanking, submitting. Look at verse 18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. That's the first command. Paul introduces a single similarity between wine and the Holy Spirit. Namely, that each can control and influence. That's the idea of filling. Okay, so we understand we're already getting our definition of what does it mean to be filled by the Holy Spirit. 
by this contrast or this comparison. Uh, Many of you have read the sermons and know of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a physician and a pastor. He actually wrote a commentary, an exposition of Ephesians. And in Ephesians chapter 5, he compares as a physician, uh, he compares and contrasts the control of alcohol and the Holy Spirit. He said this, this is interesting, quote, Wine, alcohol, pharmacologically speaking, is not a stimulant, it is a depressant. Take up any book on pharmacology and look up alcohol and you will find always that it is classified among the depressants. It is not a stimulant. It depresses first and foremost the highest centers of all in the brain. It controls everything that gives a man self-control, wisdom, understanding, discrimination, judgment, balance, the power to assess everything. In other words, everything that makes a man behave at his very best and highest. Lloyd-Jones continues, If it were possible to put the Holy Spirit into a textbook of pharmacology, I would put him under the stimulants, not the depressants. For that is where he belongs. He really does stimulate. He stimulates our every faculty, the mind and the intellect, the heart and the will. John Stott commenting on this says this, people who are drunk give way to wild, dissolute and uncontrolled actions. That's what debauchery in Ephesians 5 means. They behave like animals. The results of being filled with the spirit are totally different. If excessive alcohol dehumanizes, turning a human into a beast, the fullness or the infilling of the spirit makes us like Christ. Therefore, do not get drunk with wine. Here's the second command, but be filled with the Spirit. And again, we lose that filling. It's not like, and we talked about this before, it's not like um, our brother on this side has a half a glass of the Holy Spirit and our sister on this side um, has a whole glass of the Holy Spirit. Okay, it's, not, it's not a measurement. It is control. And we talked about this same word filling being used for the wind that catches the sails on a ship. The idea isn't that the, that the sails are absolutely full because sometimes the breeze isn't blowing that strong. But there is enough of the breeze in the sail to what? To start to carry that ship along. When we are infilled by the Spirit, when we are controlled by the Spirit, when our spiritual sails have the Holy Spirit, it moves us a certain direction. It controls us. What does that then look like? There's a parallel passage in Colossians 3.16. Similar letter. Colossians and Ephesians. And almost an, almost an exact comparison in passage as to the results. We sing. We make melody in our heart. We're thankful. And then it goes through the household relationships. Husbands, wives, children, parents. Um, but the difference is to the Ephesians, he says, be filled with the Spirit. And to the Colossians, he says... Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now, these things go together. They don't they don't cancel each other out. So this this is what it looks like to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. The spirit of God, whose name and nature are holy. Take the word of God, the scriptures, which should be dwelling in us in a rich, lavish way. And it conforms us to be like Jesus Christ. Those things do. Those things never lead to unholiness. The Word of Christ and the Spirit of Christ will never lead you to debauchery. It will lead you towards holiness. We are to be controlled by the Spirit who uses the Word of God to make us like the Son of God. So here's a a question. 
Instead of asking, are you controlled by the Holy Spirit? Let me ask, is there enough Scripture in your life for the wind of God's Spirit to fill your sails and move you through the sea of life? Or are you just sleepwalking? How do we know this is true of us or true of anyone else? How can you tell somebody is under the influence of God's Holy Spirit? How do you know they're, they're living under the influence? That's where we get the four present participles. And this is where we're going to end this morning. First, look at verse 19. And these, by the way, these offer a type of proof whether the two commands are being obeyed. I will not be controlled by... You can just insert anything in there. That is not an attack against just alcohol. I'm not, going to be the under, I'm not going to be under the influence of just my group of friends. Though alcohol in a very unique way, it's not that they are filled with it. They're not filled with a liquid. There's enough volume that's affecting their behavior. Or I'm not going to be controlled by the next series or episode. Or I'm not going to be controlled by wealth. I'm not going to be controlled by status. Right? You can choose any of those things, but be filled, controlled, led by the Holy Spirit. This is what happens when the Spirit takes the Word and moves us along. We will address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Spirit-influenced, Word-filled people fellowship. It's really the idea there. We are with one another and we speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. By the way, this does not mean we stop talking to each other, right? It's not like, how are you today? We start singing. It's kind of ridiculous. No, but what, what it does mean is that we are in close enough fellowship to re, where we can say, and, and this even happened yesterday, uh, we, we were fellowshipping, my wife and I, with two other believers, and we were just walking through some of the trials and we said, you know, that sounds a lot like 1 Corinthians 10.13. And I started to sing it. No, I didn't. I didn't start singing 1 Corinthians. But I, but, I, but I spoke the word. There is no trial. There's no temptation taking you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful. And he's not going to try you beyond what you are able to handle with his grace. He is faithful and he will make a way of escape in this. He has stewarded this trial to you. Because you can handle it with him. We speak to one another. It's not, it should not be awkward. It should not be awkward if Brother Evan comes up to me and he says, Pastor, can I share a verse with you? You know, I heard this or, or I can tell you're going through a difficult time. That is appropriate and biblical and it's a sign of a spirit-filled man. We speak to one another like that. Examples. Come, Christians, join to sing. We're singing that to one another. We're not singing that to God. Or Psalm 117, verse 1, Praise the Lord, all you nations. Extol Him, all you peoples. We're speaking horizontally. We'll sing a song, Come praise and glorify. We're inviting one another to do that. Come praise and glorify the King. Hebrews 3.13, But exhort one another every day as long as it is called the day that none of you may be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Don't ever forget that attribute of sin. It is deceptive. It promises you the world, but it's deceptive and it hardens. What we are doing in speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs is keeping before one another the true object of worship. God and His Son. Look at the next thing Spirit-influenced, Word-filled people do. They sing to the Lord. Singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart. 
Did you ever catch yourself singing to God in the last seven days? Do you ever feel like wandering from God? Do you ever feel prone to wander? Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Do you ever feel like that? Yeah, I sang that this week. Didn't record it. Nobody could hear it, thankfully. But God did. Do you sing to Him? That's what the Spirit does when the Word has a rich dwelling place in you. Even when you're hurting, you're singing to Him. Some of you have been raised in non-emotional churches. You have actually been taught that expression for God is ungodly and sensual. I have homework for you. Read the Psalms and, and get a pencil and circle every time the psalmist expresses emotion. Or every time there is animation, I lift my hands to you. Just circle it. And don't allow your tradition to shape you more than God's Word. Others have had a steady diet of over-emotional or hyper-sentimental views of worship, not guided by doctrine. Our affections must be tempered by truth, our emotions guided by that strong rudder of doctrine. So there is emotion. I mean, even Jesus says in John chapter 4, the Father is seeking worshipers. And true worshipers worship how? In spirit. By the way, that's a small s. It's, it's our affections. We worship with our emotions and our affections. We worship in spirit and in truth. Both combined. Not either or. Both together. You know, we often don't think of, of Jesus singing. But he did. After he introduced the Lord's Supper, what we call the Lord's Supper, it says in Matthew 26, verse 30, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. I'm going to guess that was filled with emotion for Jesus. I'm going to guess it was, it was a very serious, somber melody. We often don't think of the rugged Apostle Paul singing, but he did. Interestingly, at one of the most inopportune times, let me read Acts 16, verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Where were they? They were in prison. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. Later on in the story, then the jailer brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? A clear salvific effect in this singing. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in the house. Spirit-influenced, word-filled people speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And we sing and make melody in our hearts to the Lord. That's what we do. Here's the third thing. Spirit-influenced people give thanks. We've already touched on this, but look at verse 20. Giving thanks. How often? Always. Which leaves no room for complaining. And for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Giving thanks always and for everything. A grumbling spirit is not compatible with the Holy Spirit. An entitled, brash spirit is not compatible with the Holy Spirit. 
The spirit controlled believer is not filled with complaining or murmuring. He is filled with God's spirit. So there will be the natural overflow of thanksgiving. And finally, spirit influenced people submit. We're going to look at this more next week because this is the hinge verse submitting one to another. A lot of times uh, preachers will pick up in this relationship between husband and wife. And he starts with wives, submit yourselves to your own husband. And they forget that the hinge verse is before that. And it says this, submitting yourselves one to another. You actually arrange up underneath one another as believers. Okay, it's written to the church. We arrange underneath. Jesus was equal to the Father, yet he submitted to his Father's will. Often he would say, I've not come to do my own will, but I've come to do my Father's will. The Holy Spirit is not brash, but gentle. Not forceful, but patient. So in application, here's what I want us to leave with before we sing our final hymn together. First, the command to be filled with the Spirit is not optional. It is an authoritative command. Look carefully how you walk because the days are evil. And this is what a careful walk looks like. You will be controlled, carried along by the Holy Spirit through his word. Second, it is in the plural form. It is addressed to the entire Christian community. We all must look carefully how we walk and be filled, be plural, filled with the Holy Spirit, be controlled. If any of us is controlled by anything other than the Spirit of God, we compromise the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, and we increase the possibility for divisiveness. Thirdly, it's passive voice. Without explaining too much with the voices in the Greek language, just know this. There is no technique to learn. There's no three-point outline or five-step process or key or formula to recite. It only requires a believing openness to let the Word dwell in you richly and to respond to the promptings of His Spirit. And fourthly, it is in the present tense. Be being controlled. Be being filled requires continuous action on our part. Why do you think that's the case? Why even this afternoon, on the Lord's Day, two hours after the sermon and the gathering, we will be tempted to let something else control us? Because the days are evil. And we have not been completely glorified with Christ yet. The reason we must do this on a consistent, present tense basis is because a thousand and other things will try to fill and control us today. Therefore, we submit ourselves one to another and we do these things. So let me ask you, are you looking carefully how you are walking in an evil world? As the music team joins me up front, I want to give you about a minute to reflect, to let God's Word direct you, to let it lead you to repentance where we need to turn back to Him, where we have allowed other things to influence us more. I mean, it would not, it would not be uncommon for someone here to be more controlled by anger than the Spirit, even though they're a believer. It would not be strange for somebody to be filled by or controlled by lust more than the Holy Spirit. That happens. So turn. Turn back to Him. Commit to Him. Walk in the Spirit. Let's pray.